Chris Barron has been in the public eye since he broke in his early 20s with the Spin Doctors. They were a massive band. Their first record sold over 10 million copies, were nominated for a Grammy, and were featured on the cover of Rolling Stone magazine. Aside from all that, Chris is probably the most gracious, friendly, and open-minded frontman you'll ever come across. I got to sit down with him in his Upper West Side apartment just to kick it and talk shop. I got um, good Roger Daltrey material. Oh, do you? Yeah, okay. I do. Uh, well, we have a lightning round at the end, which will be good, where okay. we just sort of throw, we'll throw some stuff at you. All right. um, this is Porter Block. I'm a New York-based musician, and I also am a huge music fan. This podcast explores music from every angle, and I'll be talking to people who've made the business of music the focus of their life. Welcome to In a State. I guess, you know, we're podcasting, but I'm seeing dozens of notebooks up yeah there. that's not all of them i write every morning i write you could see like i got like you know three shelves of of f- so full notebooks you're journaling you're that doing. journaling is a kind word for what i'm doing i wake up in the morning and i write three pages some mornings it's like the silty papery white coming through the venetian blinds and sifting through the whiskers of my cats and other mornings it's you suck you're an asshole what the fuck are you doing i've fucked up the coffee and you know i wish i was like half as cool as i think i am in a state i read you saying i'm just the guy with the funny hat from the spin doctors the musicianship and the rapport and the chemistry of the spin doctors cannot be underestimated i feel like i'm like the thin end of the wedge or the tip of the spear i'm like the personality that kind of pries people's attention open but one of the things i've always been glad about with the spin doctors is that we have um, these songs that are really appealing and kind of ear candy um, but if you delve into those songs there there's a lot of pain in the lyrics and there's a lot of there's a lot going on even in the pop songs but then if you delve into the repertoire you know, we were just as nasty and dirty and heavy as a lot of these grunge bands. We've got songs like Refrigerator Car and um, Shinbone Alley that grapple with um, these themes that are very dark. And um, the grunge bands weren't the only bands that were, like, grappling with the darkness of the, of the world. And I think one of the things that differentiated us from them was that philosophically... We weren't nihilists, and I'm I'm dead against nihilism as a philosophy. I think it's I don't believe that art that's based on a lack of hope, a philosophy that doesn't contain some kind of solace, is not really much of a philosophy. It doesn't take a lot of genius to like look around at the world and see that there's systematic racism, institutionalized cruelty, and the trick in art, songwriting, poetry, philosophy, is to offer people some kind of a reason to continue to be the best people that they could possibly be. And that's the job, you know, of a philosopher or an artist or a songwriter to uh, include. You can't leave, you gotta leave, you gotta leave a hole in the ceiling for the light to get in. In a state. You're asking, like, 
you know, how do I write this stuff or do I write for specific things? And the answer is no. I just write. I sit down and I give myself permission to write the worst piece of shit anybody ever wrote or to not succeed at writing anything. The reason I, I do those pages in the morning is that my my idea about writing is you hone your skills just the way um, an athlete does. I sit down to write. I don't think about genre. I don't think about tempo. I don't think about anything except the the idea that I have in front of me. So a song is a proposition, you know, like a song is like Jimmy Olsen's blues, right? It's a proposition. I'm sitting in a cafeteria that I've snuck into because I have no money. And, um, you know, I'm 19 years old and I look across the cafeteria, 18 years old, and there's a young woman who looks like Lois Lane. So the songwriter brain kicks in and I think to myself, okay, I'm sitting here like I stole an apron and snuck through the kitchen, tucked the apron into my backpack, and now I'm like eating food that I didn't pay for it. I'm looking at this young woman who looks like Lois Lane, and I'm thinking, well, if she's Lois Lane, I'm not Superman, right? So there's the proposition of the song. Then who am I in the song? I'm Jimmy Olsen. There's a cool idea. I'm thinking, Lois Lane, please put me in your plan. Lois Lane, you don't need Superman. So a year later, I come across that in my notebook. And here, once again, I'm like, wow, that's actually a really good idea for a song. And then suddenly, I'm like, come on downtown and stay with me tonight. I've got a pocket full of kryptonite. I went to high school with John Popper, the, the great harmonica player of the Blues Traveler. And, you know, he was playing music on a very advanced level on this, you know, playing the harmonica like a virtuoso at 16. And I'm like 15. And I'm like, so, John, you play the blues, right? And he was like, yeah. And I was like, and rock and roll kind of comes from the blues. And he was like, yeah, absolutely. I was like, okay, so show me the blues. And so he played me like Paul Butterfield. The Blues Brothers, I went down to the Princeton Record Exchange, this iconic vinyl record store, with my allowance in my pocket. So I had like $6.27 in my pocket, and I bought these like 99-cent blues records. Yeah, and they were like, you know, I bought like, you know, he had all this like slick stuff, and I bought like, I bought this one compilation that I never saw again. It's called Memphis Blues Again Volume 2, and it just had these like gut bucket guys singing about like jelly roll and for me that was like this big eye-opener because I started writing songs because I wanted to sing but I couldn't really learn other people's tunes my guitar teacher was like okay next week put a record on learn the song and uh, we'll see how you do so I put on Aqualong I was like I was like fuck it I'll just write a song and I and I wrote you know I wrote a tune instead of and that's how I started writing songs so do you think that listening to John and growing up with him the way that you did that somehow your voice took on some of the characteristics of his harmonica playing? Absolutely, yeah. That I gotta tone. say, like, you know, I think I influenced him as well. Like, it's pretty well documented that I smoked a lot of pot. I haven't, I haven't smoked pot in 18 years since my daughter was born. I stopped when my daughter was born. In high school, we used to get, like, super high. We'd, when I met John, we gradually became friends in our English class because we were, like, the two smart asses. And then one day we were like, let's hang out after school because we were both interested in music. And um, I was like, can I drive your car? And he was like, you got a license? And I was like, no. And he's like, okay. And he gave me the keys, and it ran over a stop sign in the snow. This is the kind of guy John is. From then on, we would hang out after school, and I would always drive. And so we would just drive until we were lost in the hills of New Jersey. We'd get super high, and then we would just play. 
and um, we'd sit in the in the trunk of his of his Cherokee and just like play tunes and um, just freeform. And so I think I definitely learned a hell of a lot because I just went anywhere. So he'd be like, "Wait, what the fuck is he doing now? You have to change harmonicas." And the, it can't be understated that. You know, the Blues Traveler, those guys dared me to move to New York. Bobby Sheehan, to, to whom my new record is is dedicated, you know, basically dared me to move to New York City. And so those guys, I opened up for them when I first moved to town. I lived with them. There's, there's no um, doubt that I owe a lot of my career to the start that those guys, like, got me on. Angels. And when I'm I want to talk a little bit about the songs on the record. You know, Angels and One-Armed Jugglers is the title, title track. And then in Saving Grace, the first line of the chorus is, I'm tired of songs about angels. This is funny, like, contradictory kind of thing going on there, but that's all just part of the process. Um, Till the Cows Come Home, which really is, you know, laid out like a like um, a, uh, a jazz standard. And it runs through some tone-passing passages, that was a great sentence, that fall into that idiom. I didn't set out to, I wrote that song on a ukulele. You know, it's funny, I always feel that the uke, because the chord forms are different, make you kind of think about whatever you're playing an A differently than if you were yeah. playing it on the guitar. You pick up a ukulele and people think you're going to play tiptoe through the tulips. And if you play something with like an emotional content on the ukulele, people are immediately disarmed. You know, it's a, it's a great scam. I'm assuming you have more than one ukulele, right? Any true uke player yeah, I have, uh, needs a couple just yeah, to yeah. pass well, around, right? Like you can see that cabinet right there is my guitar cabinet. I have like um, yeah, but I mean just some tons of guitars stuff. and we can talk about Roger Daltrey. Good, yeah, I got um, good Roger Daltrey material. Oh, do you? Yeah, okay. I do. Uh, we did um, that concert at Carnegie Hall, and um, we did substitute and um, shit. I can't remember the other tune that we did, but he was so happy with us that he took us on Letterman. We backed him up on Letterman. We go into rehearsal to do Letterman with, with uh, Roger at like SIR. We walk in and there's like, you know, big sound stage. And, you know, there's my mic stand, you know, with the bike tape on it and everything. I look and then there's, he's got a regular mic stand, but I look at the mic and there it is with the duct tape and the wire going up and down. And, um, you know, we, we did the rehearsal and uh, it was like so cool. It was like singer to singer. We were working out the vocals together and he had his hand on my shoulder and I was like flipping. After the rehearsal, he showed me how to do the the thing where you swing the mic at the end of the... Because there's this cute little move that he does at the end. He's like, here's the whole thing. Twirling it around is like you just twirl it around. At the end, yeah, you're holding the wire in your right hand. And you take your left hand and you pull the wire through your right hand. And it pulls the mic back into your hand. And that's like the slick little button at the end. You know, everything needs a button. You just gave away the trick. I can't believe it. My training with writing, with playing, and with singing, and with performing is um, get the fuck out of your own way. The great thing about having an opera singer as a teacher is like opera and rock and roll are really similar. People think that 
you're going to rock. It's time for me to rock. So they tense up their throat and they adopt this like pose. Then they think that they're rocking, you know, or like you play on the guitar and you like hold the pick real tight and you hunch over your shoulders and you bang away at the guitar and you think you're rocking. But what, what's 50 billion times more rocking is to have like the vocal technique to get all of that bullshit out of the way. Open up your apparatus and let what's really in your soul come out. And that's how I write. That's how I sing. And that's how I play guitar. It's like, just get, get all of your bullshit out of the way. Oh, let's do this. Okay, first record. Well, you kind of got into that. But yeah, no. First, first record with your own money. Um, right back to the Who, man. The Who live at Leeds. I, I bought it from. Um, you know, it was like I was like, I was like, what's a what's a good record that's not too expensive? You reached over across the desk. Did the Who live at Leeds? Three ninety nine. It's a killer record. <laughs> first show. John Denver, Horden Pavilion, Sydney, Australia. Um, eight years old, um, had a 103 degree fever, was pretty much delirious at the show, kind of hallucinating, and it was an absolutely transcendent experience. John Denver, baby. You know, when I lost my voice, I felt like I needed to take a break from music. You know, you can be selling 50,000 records a week, and you walk into a mall, and 300 kids want your autograph, and it takes three hours to buy underwear. You know what I mean? Or, you know, you live in a two-bedroom apartment, and you drive a Subaru, and, um, and you know, you walk down the street, and once in a while, somebody's like, are you the guy from the Spin Doctors? And you're like, yeah, and they're like, dude, that's fucking awesome. And you're making the exact music that you want. You don't have a record label breathing down your neck. You do a Kickstarter, and, you know, some, like, 500 people just go, yeah, uh, you're Chris Barron. Make a record. Instead of, like, a record label being like, hey, where's the next two princes? So it's like, to me, I've always looked at life like a, like a bite of celery. Take a bite of celery and, like, there's, like, the couple of strands that are long and the couple of strands that you bite through. Yeah, and it's like, you know, every bite of celery in the, in the, in the celery stalk of life, you know, these different strands are longer and shorter and you just kind of, but it's still, it's all celery. I had a blast talking to Chris. I was already a fan of the Spin Doctors, and now I'm a fan of his solo music. I want to thank him for coming on the show, and you for listening. I'm a singer-songwriter as well. You can listen to my stuff on Spotify or iTunes, Porter Block, or listen to this podcast at www.teammensch.com. Remember, if you're listening to good music, you're in state. It's so hard.